1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. This is the word of God. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by it, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. There ends a reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Lord our God, we do thank you for your word, and we do thank you that you have preserved your word for us throughout the ages. That we can truly say that we have that which is God-breathed, and now translated in our own language so that we can understand. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we've heard your word read and now as we'll hear your word preached, that you would minister to us through the work of your Holy Spirit. And so please help the preacher and please help all of us who will hear to receive from you this morning as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you had the opportunity to write to a young pastor who was to be in charge of a church, in fact, probably a number of churches with great responsibility. If you had the opportunity with limited space, what would you write? What would be your top priority? Knowing this congregation, it would probably be very much the same thing that Paul wrote to Timothy. That Paul wrote to Timothy that the word must be central. The word must be our authority. The word must be our guide in that it is the word attended with the Holy Spirit that both keeps the church strong and brings salvation to the world. Timothy's context was somewhat different than most of our young pastors are dealing with now. He's in Ephesus. The challenges are great. He's challenged by a thoroughgoing pagan culture around him. He's dealing with an unbelieving Jewish community that's not too pleased with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's also dealing with problems from within the church or within that which is called the church. In fact, I would suggest that at least in Timothy's context, the most insidious, troublesome problem are the rogues in church who are appropriating or taking on Christianity for their own purposes calling themselves Christians, even taking the precious name of Jesus to promote their falsehood, often for their own gain. Paul was very concerned about these things. Our verse, our first verse, verse 20, begins with, O Timothy, O Timothy. And in the original language, that adds to the drama, the weight the gravity of what Paul is saying. We don't tend to speak that way, but we can feel that, oh, Timothy. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. This is a weighty matter. Grave concern how Timothy manages the church, how he conducts himself, but how he manages the church. Paul is in the position where he can say, heed my words, listen to my words. He's writing with authority under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's writing with purpose. And the whole book, the whole letter, I should say, 
is about properly ordering Christ's church in Ephesus. And at the heart of that is knowing who the person of Christ is. At the heart of it is the word of God. And you might say at the heart of hearts of that is understanding who the person of Jesus is and what his work is all about. That's under attack from different angles. And so the bookends of Paul's letter have to do with guarding that gospel. If you jump back to the first chapter, verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, and he goes on. And then we jump back to chapter 6, the end of Paul's letter. Back up a little bit to verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then jump ahead to verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Stand firm. Paul knows that Timothy is solid. But he also knows that there are great temptations. And that Timothy, according to many, must have been particularly timid. And he wants to make sure that Timothy doesn't waver in his task to guard the gospel and to protect the church Paul knew trouble was coming. If we were to go back to Acts, when Paul spent time in Ephesus and he's leaving, he's, he's warning the elders that when he leaves in time, wolves will come in to try and devour the flock. That's my paraphrase. But troublers will come in. False teachers will come in from within so-called the so-called church or so-called Christians to undo the truth that's so precious. So Timothy, guard the gospel. God has entrusted it to you. God has entrusted it to you and you need the grace and the resolve to keep it. For Timothy, that meant faithfully preaching the word without compromise. For Timothy, that meant teaching the word without shaving anything off of the truth. And if that's true for Timothy, that's also true for all the leaders that he was discipling to preach and teach anywhere in the church. And that involved, as we also saw in Timothy, it involved dealing with the false teachers, putting them out of the church, disciplining them, having trials if need be, to deal with their heresies. But it's also rather obvious that one of Paul's concerns and something that should be the result of Timothy's faithfulness should be a well-equipped congregation, you might say. That the people would recognize truth from error. In other words, the people in the pews, people like you, what does that mean for those who aren't, aren't preachers, aren't teachers necessarily, aren't elders or deacons? 
but there are so-called lay people in the pew. What does that mean for you? It means a number of things. It means that you have to be very careful to guard your hearts. And the way that you'll guard your heart is by having the word in it. And you need to be ready to discern always what is truth and what is error. You need to have the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Sometimes I think we can get negligent. I think of people who move on. Maybe they get, they get married and they move somewhere else or they get another job. They move somewhere else. They go off to college and they're somewhere else and they, they find a church that may meet some of their needs, but they never really think to delve into what their beliefs are regarding the word of God, and specifically the gospel of Christ. And they find themselves in situations where they're not really being fed by the word, but they become comfortable, and before you know it, they're kind of lulled into this atmosphere of unbelief which can't do anything good for their souls. And so it's upon all of God's people to make sure that we're holding to sound doctrine and guarding the truth even right here in this church. With your Bibles open, when you are hearing the word preached and when you're sitting under it being taught, have your Bibles open because you need to hold the leadership accountable. It is up to the leadership always to guard the gospel in the church, but people in the pews are not to remain passive in this whole thing. Sad fact of the matter is there are many true believers in churches that have abandoned the gospel a long time ago, but they don't know what to do. Their pastors have gone astray, teaching falsehood. Their elders have not held their pastors accountable, and they sit in the pews week after week hearing something far less than the glorious gospel of Christ. So this not only has bearing on leadership, it has bearing on everyone who's a true believer. Paul says to Timothy, avoid babblers, avoid those who babble, those who chatter. They have hang-ups that they like to talk about all the time in the realm of theology and doctrine and eschatology, and they get all hung up and they just babble and babble. I say that preachers like that preach Babylon sermons. They just babble on, on and on about their own philosophies and things that they've observed and never really get to the word of God. Give me a headache. I'll have time for babblers. I, I agree with, with John Calvin. I just like the way he puts this. He says they're, they're high-sounding and verbose and bombastic. They have a high-sounding, verbose, and bombastic style. Those who, not content with the simplicity of the gospel, turn it to profane philosophy. They use swelling language, which is so constantly and so disgustingly poured out by ambitious men who aim at applause rather than the profit of the church. There is a strange sound of something lofty. There is nothing underneath but empty jingle. For the power of the Spirit is extinguished as soon as the doctors blow their flutes in this manner to display their eloquence profaning real theology. That's a mouthful, but you get the sense that Calvin had very little tolerance for babblers, verbose and bombastic 
so-called theologians. Some of that's what Timothy had to deal with. False teachers. They tout their knowledge, which Paul says isn't real knowledge at all. The word there would be pseudo-knowledge, face knowledge, of, of the fake name of knowledge on what they, they believe and what they teach. The early form of this that Timothy would have had to deal with is known as Gnosticism, this, this idea of secret knowledge. We have a higher knowledge, this deeper knowledge that had all kinds of problems with it that had to do with the way that they understood the person of Christ. Matter was corrupt and evil. Spirit was good. How could you have someone like Jesus who was thoroughly uncorrupted, in his body and his soul, and being God at the same time. You just see all the problems of early Gnosticism that grow in, grows into full-blown Gnosticism not too long. You say, how bad can it get? How bad can it get? Just so what if we don't quite really understand Jesus the way that the Bible teaches Jesus? How bad can it get? Well, still some insist on appropriating Christ. Some would say, well, how can anything go wrong? Well, it's amazing how quickly heresies started to pop up everywhere. Of our particular interest, heresies having to do with the person of Christ. I'm not going to list all the different names, but here are some of the ideas, man-made ideas that were projected on Christ that rose up early in the church. And they all call into question the person and therefore the work of Christ and therefore call into question the way of salvation. Some said Jesus became God sometime after his birth. Some say the logos or the word took the place of Jesus' rational mind, his rational human soul. Arianism popped up. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are lesser created beings. They're not persons of the Godhead. That almost won the day in ancient Christian theology. Some said Jesus was divine, but he only seemed to be human. Some said that God the Father adopted him at his baptism. Some said his human nature was swallowed up in the divine. Some say he ceased to be divine while on earth, and it goes on and on and on. They make you nauseous, and they should. Because those very things are all still out there today in many different forms. And those things began to multiply and multiply. And the gospel, the gospel and doctrine and the person and work of Jesus Christ became hijacked by many different false teachings. Ironically, we're coming up on Reformation Day, ironically, and I want to be careful here, but the fact of the matter is that one of the biggest hijackers of the truth of the gospel salvation by grace alone through faith one of the biggest hijackers is the very institution that God used to preserve the word of God. The Roman Catholic Church is one of the biggest offenders 
enshrouding the gospel in all kinds of added stuff. Holding to the Apostles' Creed, but so distorting things that the gospel itself is shrouded. It's manifest in other ways later by so-called Christian cults. Do you know that Mormonism is considered a Christian religion? Do you know that Jehovah's Witnesses in some lists are considered Christians? They are heresies. But again, sometimes the most insidious dangers come from right within the church. And so even though I've gotten in trouble for this before because I've told parents, be careful where your kids go to church, even if they're adults. But the liberal church that's disregarded the gospel and denies the Lord Jesus Christ week after week have become no better than synagogues of Satan may do a lot of good stuff, but synagogues of Satan. As, as Paul will say in his next letter, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, maybe it got out of hand in history, but when was the last time you heard of a good orthodox heresy trial? We tend to tolerate so much falsehood. That may sound very exclusive as if we have the corner of the, on the truth. That's not at all what I'm saying. Please understand. But there are fundamentals of God's word that must not ever be denied. We believe in the whole counsel of God in Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. And at the core of that is the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to chapter 1, verse 15. Here's some fundamentals regarding Christ that Paul wanted to make sure were instilled in Timothy's mind, heart, and ministry. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Next chapter, 2, 5 to 6. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Some fundamentals about the person of Jesus Christ that must never be messed with. Timothy, guard the gospel. Faith is at stake. That's why this is so critical. You see, this isn't just a philosophy. It's not just a religion. This has to do with 
with glorifying God first and foremost, and then for the good of souls that will never die. Faith is at stake. This is so critical. First of all, again, because God has spoken. And the tragedy of mankind is that mankind, without the work of the Spirit, in blindness, plugs their ears, disses, disrespects the gospel, twists it, and dishonors God in doing so. And that's damaging to souls, destructive to souls. So first and foremost, God has spoken and must not be ignored. But it's also God's plan that through true preaching of the word, souls will be and are being saved. In God's plan, the advancement of the kingdom, of his kingdom in the hearts of men, has everything to do with the preaching of the gospel. It's the word of life. And so it's the duty and the privilege of the church to make sure that the word is preached and taught and preserved. The whole counsel of God. And again, at the heart, the person and work of Jesus. Only the power of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ, can save. And so it's the word of life. It's also the word for living. It's the word for living. It's a word for living for the living church, for our worship and our ministries. The the church can do many different things and should probably do much more than it's doing in many areas. But the church can do many things. But if the word of God is not foundational to it all, It's all going to be amiss. Churches that step off of the word of God are going to be off and sometimes very dangerous. And if the church's primary call is to worship, we've got to make sure that worship, every element of it, is biblical. And if the church is going to equip saints, we've got to make sure we're doing so with the word of God. And if the church is going to call sinners, call disciples, make disciples out of the world, it's got to be through the word of God. So someone might say, well, the church can do this or that or the other thing. But again, without the word, it's going to go astray. It's true for the church, it's true for individuals. For the life of the individual Christian relies on knowing and applying the word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. Think of the utmost things of the Christian faith. Mentioned worship, prayer. Mentioned utmost things like love and mercy and faith and hope and morality. If those things are not defined and informed by Scripture, they're going to be amiss. 
And we have a tendency to turn to either license or legalism. But either way, when our love and mercy and faith and hope and morality is not based on what God has revealed in his word, we're putting in jeopardy our spiritual and mental health. And even our happiness. If you define happiness as being content with God and being at peace in your soul with God. And so finally, if I were going to summarize 1 Timothy, I'd say it does have to do with that utmost and most important thing, love, ultimately. It has to do with love of God and love of saints and love of sinners. And so I would say for the love of God and for the love of the people of God and for the love of lost souls who desperately need to hear the gospel, protect, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. O Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And he closes with, grace be with you. The Lord bless you with his grace. How badly we need God's grace all the time. But even to do the things that Timothy's called to do, that we're called to do, we need the grace of God in abundance. May he grant us that grace as a church and as individuals. Let's pray. Almighty God, by your mercy and by your grace, you have not left your people in darkness. You have not left your people in the throes of death. Under the tyranny of the prince of darkness, under the entrapment of dark and foolish philosophies. But Lord, you have shown us the truth. And the truth has set us free. Each soul here today, saved by your grace, we thank you. We thank you that we've heard the gospel and that you've taught us the truth. We've seen ourselves as helpless 